Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B -b bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. It's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as proud as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter War on Drugs, episode 3.21, Ray. I thought you were... How you doing? You hanging in there, oh, buddy? yeah, it's hour three, people, so I need you all to... How do I put this? Lower your expectations and we're going to get along fine. After four and a half years of working with you, Ray, my expectations <laughs> are so low. Oh, so it's like being married to me. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I can't – Ray and I are working on a project, a secret mm -hmm. project that we can't talk nope. about really. But, um, you know, uh, in, in preparation for this secret project, um, uh, I spent a good part of last week writing four or five pages of notes yeah. for uh, one of our partners in the project. Yeah. And before I sent it to them, I sent it to Ray for his contribution and he sent me back an email going, yep, that's great. Well, in my defense, I was at the beach. With nothing to do, really, you could have been just, you know, yeah, that's that writing that's notes. True, I was. The thing that I admire about you, Ray, is you don't even feel, you don't even feel, like, <laughs> the the urge to say, "Hey, I listen, um, that's great. Uh, give me give me a few days, and I'll add a, a oh, couple of pages of notes." Well, I thought being <clears throat> time was. I'll contribute essence. something. Yeah. Just no, that's great. Well, you, you fucking nailed it. I was so keep up I the good so, work. Now pay me, bitch. I was so proud yeah. of you. Um, this is the post shame Ray. I I should have clarified that. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Uh huh. Post shame. You li we live in the post shame era. I, I graduated from Trump University. Trump University. So mm -hmm. I don't do shame. When was the pre shame? <laughs> when was the pre shame era, Ray? I, don't, I never met that one. No, no, you didn't. I don't remember. It's been a while. When you when, <laughs> uh huh, when you still had standards, 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 standards. I gotta look that up. Um, heroin addicts. Yeah. Let's talk about heroin addicts. Uh, in 1972, they constituted about one quarter of one percent oh. of the U.S. population. Okay. Um, marijuana, as the Schaefer Commission said, wasn't a problem. And yet, for Richard Nixon, public enemy number one God, was drug use. It was way off. Now, there was, um, you, you mentioned in the last episode that um, there was a lot of numbers flying around about how much drugs was costing the US economy. Nixon stood up in front of Congress and said that heroin addicts alone <laughs> stole $2 billion worth of property every year to finance their habit, even though the total amount of property stolen in the United States was only $1.3 <laughs> But uh, as you indicated, uh, people saw that and they upped the ante. Yeah. Um, one of those was uh, the Hudson Institute. Did you read the Hudson Institute's statements? Um, so it, to me, it seems like Nixon was just uh, starting a bidding war because the Hudson Institute's going to say that the, just just New York's 250 heroin addicts 
caused the $1.7 billion in crime, which, like you said earlier, wasn't even the nation's rates. But that's not even going to be good enough for presidential candidate George McGovern. He said that in 98% of the cases, the junkies steal to pay the pusher about $4.4 billion in crime. And even that wasn't good enough for Senator Charles Percy of Illinois because he raised the number to somewhere between 10 and $15 billion each year that is being stolen. So, so, and we, and we, we covered this, uh, not this, but we covered something very similar to this during Harry Anslinger. I mean, the people are just pulling numbers out of their ass. You hear someone else make a statement, so you have to make a bigger statement so you can get on the front page of the paper and knock them off. I mean, this is just insane. But again, like with Harry Anslinger, the American people don't know any better. They are taking these statements at face value. Yeah, no one questions them. The the government doesn't question them. The the media doesn't question them. It just goes. No one cares. Yeah. It just goes through. It's just all. Charlie Brown's teacher. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now uh, we mentioned the Hudson Institute that was set up by the futurist Herman Kahn after he left the Rand Corporation. Mm. And I found out that Herman Kahn was one of the nuclear strategists that Stanley Kubrick based Dr. Strangelove oh on. So um, we're going to be talking about Herman Kahn in the Cold War series nice. uh, in the not-too-distant uh, future. Um, Richard Harkness was an NBC reporter hired by the White House to manage PR for the drug mm-hmm. war. He wrote a confidential memo in May of 1972 to drug officials throughout the government, where he said, if we assume that 60% of the estimated 560,000 heroin addicts steal property to support their habit, more than $18 billion worth of property is stolen each year to pay for heroin addiction. Fuck you. So we've gone from (laughs) $1.3 billion in total theft each year to $18 billion just stolen by heroin addicts. And by the way, the other number I read was there was a quarter of a million heroin addicts, according to Jerome Jaffe. Right. Um, now it's twice ah. that, overnight. There's now twice as many heroin addicts in the country. Jesus. $18 billion is about 15 times as much property <laughs> as was stolen around the country each year. Maybe the, the um, heroin addicts sold it and stole it from each other. That would be the only way I can explain uh, those numbers. Just keep stealing it. Round yeah. Robin. Now, there was a major study done in 1985, a study about addicts and crime, and it was called Taking Care of Business.
I'm a podcaster with no nothing to do all day. day. Rice case. Cam is taking care of business and I'm drinking limoncello. Taking care of business and I'm Down walking my beach. dog. <laughs> Down at the beach, yeah. Uh, no, I didn't take the God. dog to the beach because that would have been too stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So we wouldn't want that. You just no. come back from a month's holiday in Europe. Uh, you needed that break to go to the beach. I, I did. I had to decompress. No, but this uh, this 1985 report again. Um, it pretty much you know supports stuff we've been finding out as we've been doing this series. Almost all, and I was kind of surprised by the first part. Almost all addicts commit some crime to survive. But most of their crime, like you said earlier, was selling heroin to other addicts, which makes perfectly good sense. And if heroin was legal, most addicts would not be committing crimes. And like you said earlier, most thieves were thieves before they became addicted. So this should not be earth shattering. But I imagine in 1985 it was. And it certainly wasn't, I guess, listened to like all the other reports. Yeah, it would have been earth-shattering if anyone had fucking read it. Um, of course, nobody did because it didn't follow the narrative that exactly. everyone wanted to follow, particularly during the years of the Nixon administration, which, which we'll get to in future episodes. Um, <coughs> yeah, seven researchers from a handful of colleges um, put together this report along with a whole bunch of graduate students they had working with them. Um, And, yeah, they concluded that uh, most drug addicts, heroin addicts, hold down legitimate jobs Mm -hmm. or do legitimate, you know, uh, temporary work, part-time work here and there to make money. Again, as Jaffe had suggested, the addicts who were thieves were thieves before they became addicts and they were a small percentage of heroin addicts. Right. So this whole drug war and crime and you've got, all these senators and congressmen and people in the White House blaming heroin addicts for 10 to $18 billion worth of theft. It's all bullshit. They're right. making it up. Right. And Your government just, inaction. Exactly. And, and, and the crime that is being committed, selling heroin, which is not a violent crime, they're doing with each other. They're pretty much leaving everybody else alone. Bud Krogh himself actually confessed to Congress in 1976 mm-hmm. after he was out of jail for Watergate right. that he and his staff actually used to wonder if they weren't just making the problem worse. Ah. Uh, in his own words, they wondered whether what they were doing would lead to a shortage, increase the price, and thus compel addicts to commit more crime to feed their habits. No. And haven't we seen this before in the series? Back in the 30s when Harry the gunslinger anslinger was stopping doctors from prescribing it, and then the mm-hmm. mafia got hold of it and jacked the price up by a 1,000%. And cut the quality, uh, yeah. So by, by yeah, by... by restricting heroin users' access to heroin, they created the conditions for the mafia to get more money and get more powerful and commit more crime. Um, Here we are 40 years later in terms of the story, 
Fucking no lessons learned. Here we are today recording this nearly 90 years later, still no lessons right. learned. And can you just imagine back in 1930 when uh, Dr. Uh, excuse me, when Harry Anslinger brought down that one doctor, I can't remember his name right now. Um, can you picture you're, you're addicted, but it hasn't ruined your life. You get your fix and you go about with your, with your life. Can you just picture going from getting your medicine or your drug, whatever, from a doctor to getting it from a mafia person off the corner of a street. I mean, that's just night and day different, but that's what these people were reduced to. They had no choice because the criminals were the only ones who had it. Yeah. Forcing something that somebody wants into the hands of the criminal element <clears throat> while you say you're being tough on crime, that doesn't uh, make a lot <laughs> of sense. Exactly. Doctors working at the Centre for Disease Control were telling the government in the 70s that they found more people seeking treatment in times when heroin was abundant. Mm. Which, in a way, makes more sense to me. When there's a lot of heroin, there's obviously going to be a lot of people using heroin, so you would assume you're going to get a lot of people seeking treatment. Ah, but right. maybe the the learning here is that, no, when heroin is abundant, you have the same number of people using it, but they're just more open to getting treatment. When heroin is scarce, I don't know, they, they, they're clinging on as much as possible. Right. But whatever it was, nobody in the government listened. Because again, it's not about facts, it's about politics. Nixon is being tough on crime, which meant in his words, being tough on drugs. Drugs is the number one, public enemy number one, according to Nixon. And Nixon is dead against crime, Ray, <laughs> except when it comes to bugging the Democratic National <laughs> Convention and then trying to cover it up oh. and lying about it. These are different <laughs> things, Ray. No, no. What, what you don't understand, <laughs> Ray. What you don't understand is stuff like that. It's crime with a small c. I think. What and if you, you don't understand is... Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Boosh, baby. But but there's something I just wanted to point out since we're in 1972. I think in one of the very, very first episodes, we talked about um, marijuana being tied to the Latin countries. And of course, then you've got racism. Nothing has changed in 1972. The New York Times Magazine, uh, and and as we said uh, numerous times, the uh, peri the um, news media is part and parcel with the government. You know, it's spreading their message. The New York Times Magazine reports a new phenomenon. Well, not a new phenomenon, but maybe it's new to them because they're reporting it. It's newborn addicts. And even though the number of, of newborn addicts in New York is very, very small, the New York Magazine labels it as an epidemic. And, of course, the causes are the villains, the black, the Latino, the Puerto Rican, and the slum mothers who are giving birth to these babies. And, of course, it goes into detail about their, the baby's physical conditions and their suffering. And they're blaming their mothers. They're not blaming society. They're not blaming the causes of taking drugs. Again, all of that gets pushed aside, and it's just another people are good or bad. And if you happen to be black, Puerto Rican, or in the slums, there's a, probably a higher chance that you're just one of those Bad people. Bad people who bad like... Week. Yeah. Having a good time. I, uh, by the way, at the end of the last episode, just as a lead into the uh, Aretha Franklin song, I said that Richard Nixon was the son of a preacher man. Well, he wasn't technically. Right. His father was a Quaker. His parents were Quakers. So he was raised as a Quaker. Quaker man. Um, 
who, yeah, um, who refrain from alcohol, dancing, and swearing. They're basically the oh, footloose, footloose. Uh, <laughs> people. Down and down and down and down. How does it go again? Down and down and I can't do it. It's a guitar lick. I don't know. Don't think I won't cut that out. No, go ahead. So again, we've got a guy who was raised as a Quaker, who, uh, you know, is now getting tough on crime and drugs while bugging and then lying about the bugging of the Democrats, Uh, which I wanted to get in because the president does it. It is not illegal. A reporter, anyway, asked uh, Miles Ambrose, the um, head of uh, whatever the fuck it is, O'Dali. O'Dali, yeah. um, The new drugs are about a survey that had just been published. And the journalist asked, I wonder if you are pleased with the trend among youth, particularly college kids, away from marijuana and back to booze. And Ambrose laughed and said, it recalls a happier day in which those of us which had the good fortune of going to college indulged in booze on more than one occasion, as I recall. It was beer. Let's say beer mostly. Yes, I am very much pleased in that respect. In that year, 55,000 Americans died in alcohol-related highway accidents. 33,000 died from alcohol poisoning or cirrhosis of the liver. Mm-hmm. And do you know how many died from marijuana, Ray? Um, I'm not sure where the comma is on this one, but zero? Zero, Ray, because nobody has ever died <laughs> from marijuana, ever. So, um, but no, the drug czar, Miles Ambrose, was happy that Americans were moving, American youth were moving from marijuana back to booze. But if, if I could bring something up real quick, um, and again... We've done the prohibition, and we know that even with these stats, no one is no one even is even considering going back to prohibition. I mean, that will just never happen again. We tried it; it was a miserable thing. It, it erased crime, and the people were against it. And when and FDR or whoever bought it back, it was hugely popular. But there, but the same thing is is with drugs. I mean, it, because we know that there's no difference between marijuana and alcohol in that sense. Um, I, I just can't see why they can't step back, take a logical view of this and go, look, these are roughly in the same category and we know we can't ban it because we couldn't ban alcohol. That didn't work. Like you said earlier, just nobody's thinking, no one's analyzing. It's like no one has ever studied history that's working for the government. They have no idea or they don't care what has happened before and they're certainly not learning anything from it. Well, I think they know. They just don't care because okay. it doesn't. It doesn't fit Matt. the narrative. Gotcha. To the narrative, yeah. It doesn't fit the motherfucking narrative. Okay. All right. Facts be damned. <laughs> so I want to talk about James Q. Wilson. All right. Very influential chap, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy W. Um, in early 1973, Jimmy Wilson is <clears throat> a Harvard professor. And he wrote an article uh, for the New York Times magazine, which was an excerpt from his book, which would come out a few years later. Uh, The book was called Thinking About Crime, came out in 1975. Mm. And at the time, Wilson had a pretty radical view on crime. So up until then, through the 60s, the prevailing theory in social science was that crime, like drug use, 
was caused by social circumstances. Right. Poverty, racial discrimination, a bad upbringing, etc., etc. Sure, yeah. you have a very small percentage of people that are psychopaths, um, but for most people in prisons, we know today, most people in prison are not psychopaths. Mm-hmm. They commit crimes for a variety of reasons. But uh, the, the, the thinking in the 60s was it was socially, social causes, right? Right. Social pathology, same as drug use. James Wilson came along and went, no, fuck all that shit. Um, fuck root causes. His new argument was that criminals committed crimes for purely rational reasons. Mm. They were shaped by the rewards and the penalties that it offers. So the decision to commit or not to commit a crime is based on a logical evaluation of the potential risk and reward. If the risk of getting caught is low or the penalties of getting caught are low and the rewards are high, you're going to do it. Now, he, he said that the simplest way for governments to decrease crime was to, was to alter the parameters of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. So you increase the punishment for committing a crime or you increase the odds of getting caught or both. Ah. He said it was pretty much a waste of time trying to rehabilitate criminals. They're either essentially bad people who would just commit more crimes when they got out or they're essentially good people who would go straight when they got out under their own auspices. You don't need to do anything for them um, because the punishment would be enough motivation in and of itself. Now, he suggested the approach should be short, standardised sentences. He didn't like judges having the ability to determine sentences Mm. because they could be too lenient. Um, He said the government should have standardised sentences, but make them short, right? So, you know, I don't know, five years. Mm -hmm. You're going to get five years if you get caught and found guilty of this crime, so just don't do it. You're not going to be able to plea bargain down to two years or six months, unless you work for the Nixon administration. (laughs) Then it's assured. Now, he is the guy that uh, in the 80s came up with the broken windows theory. Mm. You heard about that? No, please tell me. You never read Rudy Giuliani's book, Leadership? Uh, No, and I'm quite proud of that. But go ahead. You should. It's a great book, man. Don't diss, don't diss my mate Rudy G, my cigar <laughs> buddy. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Rudy G. Now, he wrote this book just after he got out of um, the job in New York. Oh, right. When he was, before he went completely batshit crazy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you know, he's still a right winger and take it for what you want. But it's an interesting story about um, his time running New York and even before that when he brought down John Gotti and all of this kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the 80s, Giuliani oh, – in the 80s, the Broken Windows Theory came out. It was um, Wilson and another guy, um, Kessler, I think. The Kessel Run uh, is named after him as well. Um, the Broken Windows is the theory that – if there are visible signs of crime in a community, like broken windows that don't get repaired or graffiti on walls, right. it creates an urban environment that encourages more crime and disorder, which mm. eventually leads to serious crimes. It's actually based on a, an experiment, a social psychology experiment, in which they would put a car 
out in the middle of the street, just leave it there, break a window and leave it, un- leave it unattended mm-hmm. with a broken window. And then what would happen is very soon the entire vehicle would get destroyed. When people figured out that no one cared that this window had been broken, uh, no one was paying attention, no one was fixing it, didn't really belong to anyone, people would come along and break more windows and take the tires and strip it down. Yeah, I did. Now, the theory, the theory was that if you amped up the police presence to target minor crimes like vandalism or public drinking or fare evasion, littering, these mm-hmm. sorts of things, mm-hmm. then it created an atmosphere of law and order which would therefore prevent more serious crimes from happening. Mm. Um, so th- when um, Giuliani became the mayor of New York and I think Bratton, he made Bratton the chief of police, they were big fans of this and they took it seriously and they one of the things they famously stamped down on was the squeegee guys in New York who would be at every set of lights and want right. to squeegee your window and then if you didn't give them any money, they'd get angry and uh, they, they believed that this was um, um, symptomatic of the general crime population. New York in the 70s and 80s obviously had a shit ton of crime. Right. Um, and so they cracked down on a lot of these things, graffiti, etc., littering, jaywalking. And true enough, uh, crime rates in New York went rapidly down in the 90s and the 2000s, and, and Giuliani mm-hmm. took credit for it. Right. However, there's a lot of debate over whether or not um, the broken window stuff had anything to do with that or not. Uh, one theory uh, that the guys who wrote um, was that uh, something economics book, um, Freakonomics. Freakonomics, yeah. Mm-hmm. The guys who wrote the Freakonomics book said, "Well, maybe, but maybe it has a lot." The, the drop in crime, which wasn't just in New York, it was right across the United States in the nineties and the two thousands, mm. had more to do with Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade passed in 71, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you know when Roe versus Wade was? No. I Roe v. Wade, do you know? I do not. I thought I'm it was look early it up. 70s. You looked that up. Early said. I'm going to look that up. 73 it was. My apologies. Okay. So they said that... Um, if uh, so, from seventy three onwards, women could get legal uh, abortions in the United States, which means there would be a lot less unwanted children being born, particularly to single mothers. Right. Who in the, so it means a lot less boys and women, but particularly boys being brought up in households without a father figure, low socioeconomic households, mm-hmm. mother having to work three jobs, not there to look after a son, son gets involved in crime, etc. So by the time you get to the 90s, right. these unborn men would have been who would have been born without Roe versus Wade in the mid 70s right. would have been late teens or 20 by the mid 90s because they weren't born they're not there to commit crimes. Mm. That's um, a hell of an interpretation. 
Yeah, that was their take on it. There's been lots of other arguments as well. I think it still um, has a lot of currency with police departments uh, and mm-hmm. governments around the world, but there's a lot of debate out of, of whether or not it's actually makes sense or not. Well, I thought you Anywho, were gonna, I thought you were going to say that if you have the cops going around coming down on jaywalkers, coming down on squeegee people, coming down on vandalism, just the fact that there seems to be more of a presence or they're actually getting involved, I I thought maybe that might lead to people are like, okay, the cops are actually doing something or they're taking care of things and maybe that deterred crime. That's what I originally thought you were going to say. Just, you know, just like the fact that they're, Maybe there's more of a presence, or they sit their perception of an increased presence of cops doing these, looking after these smaller infractions, might have led to. I don't know. I should, that's just my interpretation. I think that's as valid as anything about abortion, but that's just my interpretation, my two cents. I think you're probably right. I think it's probably a combination of all of these elements, as most mm-hmm. things are. Sure. Um, and we, you know, we also talked, I think, in our gun control episode when we talked about the drop in crime rates. That another big theory on the drop in crime in the United States is about them taking um, chlorine. Was it not chlorine? What do they take out of the water? Um, uh, lead. It? Yeah. Taking helps. taking taking lead out of the water, which uh, tends to make people crazy. So you take the lead out of the water. Uh, which happened again, I think, in the six, late 60s or early 70s. Um, give it a generation and you got a lot less crazy people running around. Thank God. Anywho, um, getting back to Congress. So Wilson's um, recommendation was for short mandatory sentences. Uh, Congress went, we're going to take that and we're going to up it. Uh, who cares what the expert says? We're going to make long mandatory sentences. Oh, my God. Like so, 10 years without parole for a first offence cocaine dealing charge. That's insane. And, and again, even though we've seen this before, I think they really think we're going to make the punishment so extreme People aren't even going to try it. They're just going to walk away from drugs. They're just going to walk away from selling. They're going to walk away from using. They're just going to walk away from that entire life. I mean, that's the sense I got that they thought they were just coming down so hard they would eradicate crime. Four tops, man. You you like to be a top. I know that, but you're, it's only one of you. As long as you take um, turns, I'm pretty good. Anyway. Yeah, the theory behind it all, uh, I mean, I, I'm not a, an expert, but um, we know that uh, do you have more people or less people in prison now in the United <laughs> States after the this theory. More. 
not more. less. Less more. crime, but more people in prison. Go figure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, later in 1973, Congress voted on Nixon's plan to combine O'Dali, the BNDD, and uh, the drug-fighting functions of customs into a single agency, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Jeez. And then in his, in his State of the Union in 1973, Nixon said he was going to ask Congress to pass new bills that would allow for imprisoning accused narcotics violators without bail before they were even convicted. <laughs> Jesus. And creating mandatory jail sentences of five years to life for heroin dealers. Um, so that's a bit of preventative defend, uh, detention there for your narcotics, accused narcotics violators. Right. God. And uh, five years to life for heroin sellers. So, again, so you've got the Congress coming in with the longer mandatory sentences. You've got RICO coming in, confiscating homes and bank accounts of people. And because government, because police agencies are so imperfect, and we've already mentioned a few major, you mentioned a few major mistakes uh, that cops have made going into the wrong house, hurting and shooting people and, and burning babies. When, you, when, the, when the RICO takes the homes and banks, you've you got to think they're taking innocent people's property so because they're making mistakes, which, of course, only makes poverty even worse. And so under all of this, the Fourth, the Fifth, and the Eighth Amendments are under severe attack by the very government that is supposed to be protecting us through them. All based on fake stats and bullshit <laughs> ideas. <laughs> because one politician had to have a more grandiose statement than the last guy. Yeah, it's exactly Jeez. what it is. Jeez. Everyone needs... And it started with Truman, right? Tough on communism. From Truman onwards, everyone needs to look tougher than the last guy. Jeez. Um, yeah, so uh, they had a minimum sentence of 10 years to life for major traffickers in drugs. Offenders with a prior conviction for a drug felony, life imprisonment without parole. Fuck. And Nixon also reintroduced capital punishment for certain federal crimes. Apparently, He's the Supreme playing. Court yeah. had declared capital punishment unconstitutional a few years earlier. Huh. But Nixon went, nah, no, no. nah. And for- I think he had his own, own people on the Supreme Court now, and uh, they said, uh, don't worry about that anymore. <laughs> so for drugs, I'm willing to kill you. That's how... Strongly, I believe in this. Yeah. Jeez. Now, but as the Nixon administration came crashing down mm-hmm. with the president resigning halfway through his second term to avoid impeachment Oops. amid the Watergate scandal, mm. how many American presidents have ever been successfully impeached, Ray? I thought, uh, wait a minute, no, impeached as opposed to accused um, I think Clinton. No, there, there's a distinction between being actually kicked out of office and proven guilty of something. And that's fuck. It's too late at night for me. Um, Clinton had Clinton was proven something, but he wasn't impeached. Or do I have it backwards? 
I don't know the fucking answer. No, he was impeached. He was impeached, but he wasn't. Yeah, Clinton. Clinton was impeached. Right. Yeah, but the Senate, the Senate, the Senate uh, that's what I'm let him off. Of. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Thank you. There was another one before him. Who was impeached? And it wasn't Nixon. Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson, 1868. Oh, fuck. Okay. What, for why? dismissing, yeah. he dismissed Edwin Stanton as his Secretary of War. Oh, shit. I guess the House of Representatives didn't appreciate that too much. By the way, I'm listening to a great podcast on the Lewinsky affair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's put out by Slate. Um, I can't remember the name of the podcast, but uh, it's just come out. They've done like one episode, I think, or maybe two, um, going back and telling the whole story of the Lewinsky affair. Fascinating wow. stuff. And I've read a lot about it over the years and follow it pretty closely, but already I'm learning stuff from this podcast. It's going to be a long series, like a 10, 12-episode arc right. on uh, the Lewinsky affair, um, which I'd love to do as a podcast series ourselves at some stage because it's fascinating and, and obviously still very controversial and not well understood, I think, by a lot of people in the United States. Oral sex, I'm there. <laughs> oh, I know. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, Nixon brings back capital punishment, um, but then Nixon get, comes down with the Watergate scandal. He, he resigns before he can be impeached. And then the war on drugs is really kind of quiet for a few years. Um, Bits and pieces happen. Like in 1975, the Domestic Council Drug Abuse Task Force, uh, this would have been under um, Ford, releases a report that recommends that priority and federal efforts in both supply and demand reduction be directed towards those drugs which inherently pose a greater risk to the individual and to society. Mm-hmm. So not marijuana, basically, reading between the lines there. They were like, yeah, look, marijuana it's not bad. Don't know if you've read the previous reports, but don't worry about marijuana. Um, it said it called marijuana a low-priority drug. Mm in contrast to heroin, amphetamines, and barbiturates. Um, But again, did anyone listen? Not really. Um, Not for long, anyway. I think the the Ford and Carter administrations kind of backed off marijuana a bit in those years. Meanwhile, um, the Colombian police uh, in 1975 seized 600 kilos of cocaine from a small plane at the Cali airport which was the largest cocaine seizure to date. Uh, And it happened to be owned by a cartel no one had really heard of at the time called the Medellin Cartel. Mm. Um, And in response to the seizure, the Medellin Cartel began a vendetta known as the Medellin Massacre. 40 people died in Medellin in one weekend as a result. Damn. And this sort of made everyone aware of the new power in Colombia's cocaine industry um, based in Medellin. Um, Then in 1976, Jimmy Carter campaigned in favour of relinquishing federal criminal penalties for possession of up to an ounce of marijuana. Wow. That's bold. And... And he got elected. His drug czar, Dr. Peter Bourne, who had previously worked with Jaffe in Washington, 
didn't view marijuana or even cocaine as a serious public health threat. I read a mm. couple of interviews with him. Oh, cool. Um, little known fact, the Bourne Identity films and <laughs> books were based on him. He was it. not only Carter's drug czar, but he was also a badass <laughs> killer in his spare who, time. Who occasionally who lost got his amnesia. Memory. Yeah, didn't know who he was, but he could still do all this yeah. stuff. So pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, badass. Then in 1978, the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act was amended. Mm. It allowed law enforcement to seize all money and or other things of value furnished or intended to be furnished by any person in exchange for a controlled substance and or proceeds traceable to such an exchange. Damn. You mentioned that before. So yeah. what happened to Carter, who campaigned on marijuana not being an issue um, and whose drugs are said marijuana and even cocaine weren't a public health threat? Well, Carter had some problems in his administration. Um, were they his fault or not is debatable. Yeah. Um, the Iran uh, crisis, probably not his fault. Um, you know, it stemmed from the U.S.'s previous support of uh, the Shah mm -hmm. after they kicked uh, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mossadegh, out in the mid-50s. Um, the U.S., that is, the CIA, removed him secretly, covertly. Um, uh, there was, you know, the OPEC crisis and uh, mm -hmm. inflation partially caused by the OPEC crisis. We, we've talked about this sort of stuff on um, this show, actually, back in the Syria series. We talked about some of that kind of stuff. So he inherited a lot of this stuff. But anyway, he had a lot of problems. So doing things right. like uh, decriminalizing marijuana and cocaine was he didn't have the right conditions and circumstances for it. Um, and then, of course, in 1980, Ronald Reagan swept into the White House, backed by Jerry Falwell's moral majority. Oh, fuck. Pro fundamentalist Christian organization. And once again, drugs were seen not as a public health issue, but as a great moral failing of weak individuals and evidence be damned. <laughs> If, if we could just compare that, I, I just want to mention this real quick, just for comparison's sake, to show that Carter tried. In 1976, the federal drug strategy under Carter said that we need to go back to the root causes. When it comes to heroin addicts, we need to work on poverty, unemployment, alienation, lack of opportunity. We need to, to distill the real drug problem versus the perceived drug problem, which is what you just said. It's, it's not society's fault. It's these weak bad people. We just need to ground them into powder, throw them into jails, and we'll be able to get away with all this. But his report also noted that alcohol was the most widely used drug in the United States, and its abuse is related to more deaths and injuries than any other drug. So they were trying to do things. They were putting out these reports. He, I think he had the right idea. His heart was in the right place. But like you said, there's a lot of other events, external events beyond Carter's control. All this stuff is going to get swept up and washed away by much larger events. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's where we're going to leave it. Um, 
for this uh, episode slightly shorter than our usual episodes because I want to get into Reagan next time. Get into the Reagan Deep. era when it it went up another notch. The craziness uh, on all sorts of levels, right? Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, get, you, we'll, we'll, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with you, that. If you, I'm sorry, if you can't think religion can get any, always it can always get crazier. If you don't think it can, they can always turn it up to eleven. And I think we're going to see that next time. And we're going to go out uh, because she died today in our time with oh. a little bit more Aretha. When I think of Aretha, I have nothing but respect.